I'm Julie Van Warmer, and you're listening to Unshaken, a podcast of the Women of the Word Ministry of Christ the Word Church. Hey, just a reminder, I always do these reminders, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast directory. And also don't forget to join our Facebook community called Unshaken Podcast. That way you can dialogue with us about what you're listening to. And actually, something really fun happens at the beginning of every season as we have a fabulous giveaway. And we only do that through our Facebook page, so you want to join that so you can see when it's coming out. Our next giveaway will kick off in September of 2021, so join our Facebook page now. Last week, we had a great conversation with Aaliyah Bailey all about the topic of sin. Now, it's hard to believe that someone could have an entire, I would say, 60-minute podcast all about this amazingly humongous topic of sin. But we did it. (laughs) And I have to actually tell you that I walked away from this episode really very encouraged for a lot of reasons. I love how Aaliyah reminded us frequently throughout the interview that when we see sin in our lives, it's not something to be despairing about or discouraging. It's actually a gift from God for us to see it. Then we can deal with it. And that's actually where God comes and helps us, walks us through how we deal with it, helps us fight the sin we see. So actually being able to see it is actually a gift from God. So actually, this was a pre-recorded talk that was given at our very first women's conference at Christ the Word in 2014. Adrienne McClavick did a breakout session on this very hot topic when it comes to sin. In fact, I would say this topic is a topic that actually is the root of pretty much all sins when you really go down and dig deep. So she's going to talk today about the topic of pride. Now, I'm not sure about you if you struggle with this. Okay, wait a minute. That's just stupid. We all struggle with pride. Maybe um, maybe you have pride in different ways. Maybe it comes out in different ways. Like sometimes we see pride and it's the woman who, who talks about herself all the time and boasts about her and her kids. Well, yeah, that's pride. Or maybe it's the woman who is secretly in her heart always judging everyone around her, comparing herself and finding herself better than others, even though she has a smile on her face. Actually, Adrian's gonna walk us through a whole bunch of ways to find pride in our lives. Don't be discouraged though. She has some really good things to say about how we can fight this sin and how we can move forth in humility. So let's jump right in. All right, we'll get started. <clears throat> Have any of you ever heard the term humble brag? Do you know what a humble brag is? If you've not heard of it, you would recognize it in an instant. It's when someone subtly or not so subtly cloaks a boast in a humble sounding statement. Like, your inflatable inner tube is so much cooler than my 80-foot raft because you get to be so close to nature and the water. I envy you. Or maybe humble brags in the workplace might be something like, oh, you know, I just can't, I can't sleep these days because I just, since I got that new promotion, I know how many people are depending on me. So you sound really vulnerable and like you're concerned for others, but what you really want people to know is that you have a high-powered job and lots of subordinates. Mom humble brags are a whole nother category and can be the worst. Like, I'm such a boring mom. All we do is sit around and craft. So it sounds humble. I'm boring, and all we do is stay at home. But what I really want you to know is I am a scrapbooking, Pinterest-using mom, and my kids don't even want to leave the house. I'm so cool. So we turn to humble bragging because even the most heathen among us knows that it's really not acceptable to brag outright. Like we hear about celebrities or um, the Kanye West. You know, Kanye, he's got the, I'm going to read this quote because this is like... My greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. (laughs) And we think to ourselves, wow, that guy's kind of a jerk. So it's a natural instinct to be self-promoting, self-interested, self-important. And this starts at birth as the infant's entire world is centered around his digestive tract. Right, Aaron? And... As we go to, you know, then comes the toddlers and they think that every single toy in the world belongs to them or should belong to them. 
And as we grow into adulthood, most of us get a little more sophisticated about this self-centeredness, but it's still there. We, my family and I, we go to Myrtle Beach every summer, and it's to this place that has lots of pools and hot tubs. So we sit in the hot tubs because I don't like cold water. I like the hot tubs. And when I'm sitting five feet across from someone for 10 minutes in a hot tub, I'm liable to start talking to them rather than just staring at them, pretending they aren't there. So I've made an observation. I can have, we're there for a week, right? So I can have maybe 10 conversations a day with all different types of people, old people, young people, men and women, and it will be really unusual if I have more than two people the entire week who ask me any questions at all. And it's not as if these people don't want to talk. They just want to talk about themselves. By the time we get out of the hot tub, I will often know about their children, their grandchildren, their careers, their medical conditions, what they like to do on vacation. I'll know the whole history, but often they haven't asked a single question. <clears throat> As I said, it's a natural instinct to be self-important, self-absorbed, self-promoting. Of course, the Bible does not call it an instinct. The Bible calls it sin. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. C.S. Lewis says that pride leads to every other vice. This is a hefty statement. But think about any sin. Gossip, anger, adultery, and if you think about it, the root of those sins are pride. The Lord does not take a lack of humility lightly, and scripture is just chock full of verses where we learn God's opinion about pride. Just a few of them. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 26.12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. James 4, 6, God is opposed to the proud. As I prepared this talk and thought about humility, I knew I needed to talk about Moses. Because Numbers 12, 3 says that Moses is the most humble man who ever lived, which is quite a statement. That's saying a lot, the most humble man who ever lived. And I thought, what made Moses so humble? Did he start out that way? What can I learn from Moses in growing, about growing in humility myself? The first characteristic I want to talk about is that a humble heart is able to accept God's will for one's life, even when it's difficult. A a humble heart is able to accept God's will, even when it's difficult. Let's think about Moses for a couple of minutes. Here was a man who, as a baby, was rescued from a sure death by Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh, who was threatened by how many Israelites had been multiplying in his country, um, turned to slavery. That didn't squelch their growth. And so then he turned to genocide, and he decreed that all the Hebrew baby boys who were born should be killed. So you know how Moses' parents hid him for three months, put him in the basket, floated down the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter herself, pulled him out and adopted him and raised him as her son. The irony in this situation is just perfect. Pharaoh wanted to kill all the babies, and then one of those babies ended up being raised in his own household. And you would look at that situation and say, wow, look at God's will for Moses to show Pharaoh he isn't in control and to give Moses this wonderful opportunity to be raised like a prince. Cool. But God's will went far beyond that. Apparently, even though Moses was being raised in Pharaoh's household, he still identified with the Israelites, and he knew his roots. And he identified so strongly with the Hebrew people that when he saw an Israelite mistreat, an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite, he murdered the Egyptian. And when it became known what Moses had done, he had to flee Egypt. So he fled Egypt, and for the next 40 years, he lived as a shepherd in Midian. He got married, had a couple sons, and then... God appeared to Moses. He told Moses that he wanted him to return to Egypt and rescue his people, the Hebrews, from slavery. Someone who was hearing the story for the first time might think, wow, Moses must have been thrilled. What an opportunity. You know, here's these people that he, he identified with and wanted to help, and now God has given him this opportunity. What an honor. But if you know the story, you know that 
This was not Moses' reaction, was it? He was not thrilled. Moses was horrified. Something had happened to him during those 40 years in the Midianite desert. He may have been a Hebrew, but he didn't identify with them anymore. Why would he want to put himself in danger to help people he didn't even know? To do something that sounded truly impossible and crazy, what was God thinking? Maybe he was making a mistake. Moses suddenly found himself in what appeared to be a desperate situation. Failure seemed certain. At this point, Moses had not yet developed a humble heart. He talks back to God, and he begs him to change his mind. He uses all these He brings out all these different reasons. His first thing he says is, I'm nobody. Who am I to do such a thing? Exodus 3.11, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He also says no one will listen to him. In Exodus 4.1, he says, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they'll say, The Lord did not appear to you. And then Moses points out how unqualified he is for the job. He says, I am a terrible public speaker. Exodus 4.10, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, but I am slow of speech and tongue. God, of course, gives perfect answers to every single one of Moses' objections. And finally, Moses has no more reasonable arguments, and he just blurts out, Lord, please send somebody else. On the surface, doesn't Moses kind of sound humble? This is how many people would define humility. He's not thinking very much of himself or his abilities. He's not bragging, I'm totally capable of this. I was raised in the royal household, and I know a thing or two about this. He's saying, I'm nobody. I am not capable. Send somebody else. That sounds humble, but it is not humility. Humility is being able to accept God's will for one's life, even when it's difficult. God was telling Moses that his will for him was to go to Egypt and lead his people from slavery. And Moses was actually reacting in pride when he initially told God no. He was saying, I know better. My way is better. And isn't this our knee-jerk reaction often when faced with difficult situations? Your company gives you an option. Take a 20% pay cut or you're out of a job. How will you pay your bills? This can't be God's will for you. Your daughter's family announces that they have to move across the country and take your grandchildren who you love with them. How can this be God's will? This can't be from God. The medical test comes back with a bad result, and all of a sudden your future is filled with uncertainty. You can't, this can't be God's will for you. You have children to raise. You have things to do. Or maybe you're thrown into a situation where you're just in over your head. You're incompetent. You have no idea what to do. Failure is certain. This can't be where God wants you. Or maybe your unpleasant situation isn't in extreme circumstances at all. Maybe it's just in surviving the mundane. You've washed one too many load of laundry. You've cooked one too many meal. You've filled out one too many boring form at work. You've refereed one too many sibling argument. You think, is this all that God has for me? Certainly, his will for me must include something more important, something more impacting. The temptation is to be like Frank Sinatra, who sang with pride his song, I Did It My Way. Well, good. Good for you, Frank. (laughs) You did it your way. Moses wanted to do it his way. Just send someone else, Lord. We want to do it our way. We grow bitter at bad news. If we're being truly honest, we doubt that God is good. We worry, we fret, we stop praying because we think if God would allow this into our life, he must not care for us that much. We resort to lying or deception to improve our situation. We do it our way. Now, to accept God's will in a difficult situation doesn't mean that you just limply resign yourself. Not at all. Pray for medical curing you, a medical solution to your problem. Pray for your husband's salvation. Pray that you could conceive. Pray for a better job. Expect a miracle. But if the Lord answers no to our prayer, realize that it may actually be God's will to allow suffering into your life. It's because of love, not hatred. 
that he allows us to suffer. Suffering teaches us to lean on him. It increases our faith. It leads us away from pride. To react in bitterness or fear to our situation is pride. If God has put you in a difficult situation, don't compare yourself to others. Don't let your mind drift to thoughts about why you have to suffer through this when people around you seem to have it so easy. This will just lead to discontent with your situation and in the end, discontent with God. I have several friends who have learned to suffer well. We just heard from one of them, Julie. And I have these friends, four of them, who are incredible examples to me in this. And they have received a crushing medical diagnosis or even the death of a child with humility. And this is so glorifying to God. And it's such an example to me because it says to the Lord, I'm in your hands. I trust you with my life. Moses, after he pleaded with God to change his mind, did begin to have a humble heart. After God said no, Moses picked himself up and he went to Egypt. He obeyed this difficult thing that God asked of him. And from that point on, he did whatever it is God asked him to do. He was still often uncomfortable in his circumstances, but he followed the Lord after that point, and the result was glorious. Miracles on a scale that had never been imagined before were done. And God went with Moses and sustained him in every difficulty. Would this have happened if Moses had done it his way? If God had sent someone else? Well, God still would have accomplished his purposes, but Moses wouldn't have seen any of it. It was only after Moses submitted to God's difficult will that he was able to witness God's work. And it's the same in your life, and it's the same in my life. So what other things characterize humility? The first was to accept God's will for our life, even when it's difficult. The second thing I'd like to talk about is that a humble person has God-esteem rather than self-esteem. Doesn't this run against the grain of our culture? Self-esteem isn't just the goal of modern life. It's held up as the method by which all of our other goals are attained. You want healthy and happy children? Build up their self-esteem. You want to succeed in the workplace? Make sure you foster a healthy self-esteem. You want a happy marriage? Focus on your own self-esteem first. When I was in college and taking teaching classes, I was told to never use a red pen when I was correcting papers because this would be discouraging to my students. I distinctly remember the phrase, the red ink will look like blood all over the paper. I've gone to junior and senior high music programs at school, and on the back there are these lists printed like, these parents gave $50 to the music program. These parents gave $75 to the music program. I've been to elementary school events where every single person had to be thanked. You know, like, we want to thank Patty for bringing the napkins today. And you're just like, every single person needs a pat on the back. We all need to feel good about ourselves. Self-esteem. A healthy self-esteem is what caused Justin Bieber, when he visited the Anne Frank House in Amsterdam last year, to write in the guest book. This is what he wrote in the guest book. Truly inspiring to be able to come here. Anne was a great girl. Hopefully, she would have been a believer. Now that's healthy self-esteem. We can look around, however, and see that making us feel good about ourselves is no magic recipe for a satisfying life. The reality is, if we want happy children, satisfying careers, healthy marriages, we should be focusing on the Lord and not on ourselves. God-esteem, not self-esteem, is the key. Moses learned this, and it was one of his defining characteristics of his humility. He was surely one of the greatest leaders of all time. He led two million people through thousands of miles of unhospitable terrain over the course of 40 years. Everybody in the world at that time would have known who he was. But we know that Moses was humble because although God used him in miraculous ways, Moses understood that God was the leader of the Israelites and not himself. We see this in Moses' speech as recorded in scripture over and over again. In one place, in his song after the Red Sea was 
washed over the Egyptian army. In Exodus 15, Moses sings, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Moses always pointed to God and not himself. And he was more concerned about God's reputation than his own. There were a couple points in those 40 years when the Israelites rebelled so completely that God threatened to strike them all dead and start over with Moses and his family. And you have to admit that this would be just a tiny bit tempting, right? Those Israelites made Moses' life miserable. They complained and complained, and they wanted to go back to Egypt and be slaves rather than follow after Moses. Wouldn't you be just a little bit tempted to say, okay, God, strike them dead? But Moses didn't do that. He pleaded with God to forgive them, saying in Numbers 14, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard our fame will say, it is because the Lord is not able to bring this people into the land that he has killed them. Moses was concerned with the Lord's reputation and not his own. He esteemed God and not himself. There are two ways that we can see very clearly whether we esteem ourselves higher than we esteem God. Can I take a drink? The first is to look at our calendars. And the second is to look at our bank accounts. We are faced every month, every week, every day with options about how we are to spend our time and our money. What do your calendar and checkbook say about who you esteem? Are you so busy with the responsibilities of life or the recreations of life that you find that you rarely have more than a few rushed minutes to spend time reading the Bible or praying? I'd say that you are too busy with the wrong things. We serve a Lord who wants to have a personal relationship with us. Think about that. At any time, we can actually pray and talk to the creator and Lord of the universe. We can read his very words every time we open the Bible. And yet, we would rather peruse Facebook or watch a movie or do yard work or pick up an extra shift at work than to sit down and make time to pray and read the Bible. We say we love Jesus and then we make everything a priority before spending time with him. If your time with the Lord is an afterthought, something that you tack on if you have loved over time, I would venture to say that you don't have much of a relationship with him. What does your calendar say about who you esteem? Okay, I'm going to tread on some uncomfortable ground here, but this is just one example of what I'm talking about. We, we live across the street from Paysetter Park in Sylvania, which is one of the biggest soccer venues in northwest Ohio. And some Sunday mornings we find it almost impossible to turn out of our neighborhood because there are so many cars going in to Paysetter. And some Sunday mornings, if our windows are open, you know, we can hear very loud cheering as parents cheer on their kids at the games. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with cheering on your children. I love to cheer on my children. But I've often wondered, as we drive past those soccer fields, which are packed on Sunday morning, how many of those families would say that they esteem Jesus? Now, the vast majority don't have any thought of the Lord. It's not part of their lives. He's not part of their lives. So who could blame them for being on the soccer field on Sunday mornings? But what about those families who say they serve Jesus? Why are they on a soccer field on Sunday morning when they should be worshiping the Lord in a church? They say they have no choice. If their children are to be in organized sports, you have to play on Sunday. And actually, that's true. I mean, in large part, that really is true. We have six children, and two of them are quite athletically inclined, one in particular. And we've encountered that as he's wanted to play different things. You know, that's, that's pretty much what the option is, almost. But if we... If we skipped out on church to follow after his activities, what would that communicate to my children? It communicates loudly that their their activities are more important than serving the Lord. That kicking a ball through a net or throwing a ball through a hoop is more important than worshiping the Lord as he has actually commanded us to in his scriptures. The child's self-esteem is built up. His God-esteem is torn down. Let's flip that around for a minute. 
If you are a Christian and if you are a parent, you should want nothing more than to see your children following the Lord, to have a heart for him, to serve them when they get to be teens and adults, not because we tell them to, but because that's part of who they are, what they want to. Some of the older women in this room have seen the joy of that as their children have become adults and are serving the Lord. That should be our ultimate goal in parenting. Don't you agree? Do your calendar and your checking account reflect working towards that goal? How are you spending your time together as a family? How do you spend your money? What do your activities and conversations communicate to your children and to those around you about whom you are serving? Are your ambitions for yourself and your ambitions for your children, if you have any, are they biblical? Does your calendar and does your bank account say that you value recognition in the areas of education, vocation, athletics more then you value eternal recognition from our Father. Do you celebrate godly character in your children as much and as enthusiastically as you celebrate a good math score? What activities and expenses are you actively pursuing that cultivate humility and biblical greatness in your life and in the lives of your children, if you have any? What are you doing for God's glory rather than your own? A humble heart puts God's business before its own. Turning back to Moses for a minute and switching topics, we also see Moses' humility when his authority was challenged. On two separate occasions, his authority was challenged, and in his response, we see at once his, his humble heart. Once his own two siblings came to him and challenged him and said in Numbers 12, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken to us? And the other times, some ringleaders mustered up a couple hundred men, and they came to Moses, and they were very angry. And they said, you've gone too far, for the whole congregation is holy, every one of them. Keep in mind, this is a congregation that just worshipped the golden calf. Why then do you exalt yourself above everybody else? In both of these circumstances, when Moses' authority was questioned, and in both circumstances, both of these times, he was questioned unjustly. His response was to immediately turn to the Lord. He didn't lash out with a, do you know who you're talking to? Do you know who I am? Instead, Moses prostrated himself and let God work it out. He let God step in and vindicate him. He was so humble that he refused to take it upon himself to squelch this rebellious attitude against him. Now, he didn't display his humility by being a doormat. He didn't say, oh, oh, you're right, okay, I guess you can be in charge too. That wasn't how he was humble. His humility was displayed by the fact that he immediately brought the situation to God. When our authority is questioned... When people step on our toes at work or in our family, at home, at church, do we immediately bristle? Are we offended when people don't give us the respect or attention or honor we think we deserve? Do we think, how dare they? Do you immediately go and tell someone, you want to go tell someone how you were wronged, to pick up a phone and tell your mother or your friend, you wouldn't believe what they just did to me. Or maybe you want to lay into the person and tell them how it is. Tell them, you know, what they did to offend you. Or do you bring the situation to God in prayer and let him vindicate you? This is a lot harder than speaking out. It feels good to get things off your chest like that, to tell someone off. But often when we're angry, it's because our pride has been insulted. We think we deserve better. I once heard a talk by Nancy Wilson, for those of you who know she is. She said, it is a sin to be offended. It's a sin to be offended. Now, I know that our knee-jerk reaction is often to be offended, just the immediate. But what happens after that initial, ugh? Do we then turn the offense over and over in our mind and let it fester Do we rehearse it over and over in our mind? Or do we 
take that offense and pray about it. Do we say, please vindicate me, Lord. Let the truth come out in the situation. Or even, Lord, reveal to me if I'm wrong here. Show me any sin I might have in this situation and help me make it right. And the more we do this, the more that instinctual, ugh, just won't even happen. Similarly, Moses was able to take advice from others. His father-in-law Jethro visited him in the desert, and he saw that Moses acted as a judge for all the Israelites. Anyone who had a problem would bring their dispute to Moses, and he would decide the matter for them and teach them what God would want in the situation. After his father-in-law Jethro saw this, he approached Moses and he said, What you're doing is not right. You'll wear yourself out doing it all yourself, but select capable men from all the people and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you, the simple cases they can decide for themselves. So that was his advice. And upon hearing this advice, Moses didn't say, listen, I'm the one that God appointed to be leader over all these people. I know what I'm doing. And he also didn't give a bunch of reasons why Jethro's idea wouldn't work. What did he do? He immediately implemented it. Took the advice, implemented it, and it worked. It took the burden off Moses. It it was a great advice. Moses took it. How do we accept counsel? Do we accept it humbly? Do we consider it? Or do we immediately go on the defensive? There are many ways that God talks to us, but the main ways that God speaks to us, of course, it would be nice if he spoke to us one-on-one like Moses, but he doesn't. So what does he do? He speaks to us through his word, what he says in the Bible. If you're a believer, he speaks to us by the Holy Spirit, which lives inside of us and gives us direction. And he also, number three, directs us through godly counsel from others. So if we are too prideful to take godly counsel from others, we might be rejecting what it is that God is actually calling us to do. And if we find it easy to reject advice from godly friends, godly pastors, godly family, if we say, I know better, I know what I'm doing, I'd be willing to wager that we also will find it quite easy not to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit if we're being led to an uncomfortable place. And it also will be easier to reject what God tells us in his word, the Bible, thinking that it doesn't really apply to us. Oh, I know God's word says flee sexual immorality, but this is 2014. It's not the dark ages. It's okay if I live with my boyfriend because we really don't have money to get married right now. Or I know the Bible says that God hates lying lips, but you don't know my situation. If I just fudge the truth a little bit here, I can fix everything. We need to understand that God's word is actually his instructions to us. It's not a suggestion guide. Do any of you have um, kids with Legos, like those Lego sets? You know what? I love those little, they come with these little instruction books, and they have pictures and numbers, and you can just, you can make, if you want your picture to look like the front of the box, you have to follow every single step, right? If you don't follow the steps, You end up with something, but it's not the front of the box. The Bible is God's instruction book for life, for us. It's the steps he wants us to take for life. Do we view it this way? Or do we justify and justify that it doesn't actually say what it actually says because it makes us uncomfortable? A humble heart is teachable. A humble heart says, I don't know everything. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I would please Jesus more if I changed in this way. Another way to cultivate a humble heart is to appreciate the gifts that we've been blessed with. Having a humble heart is not having a low opinion of our own gifts. I have known Christian parents who think they can never praise their children because they think that will lead to pride. That's not quite right. It's fine to praise our children when they do well. It's fine to rejoice in our own gifts. But here's the catch. 
we need to teach them and we need to teach ourselves that anything good that we have is a gift from God our Father. It's a gift, and it comes with responsibility. One of my children, our oldest, is really brainy. When he was little, he asked for a dictionary for his birthday, and he read it. He memorized the periodic table of elements in, in elementary school for fun. I mean, this was fun to him. It's a little freaky weird. But it also meant that he got very good grades in school, and from the youngest age, here is what we drilled into him. God blessed you with a good mind. You are nothing special. You are nothing great. God is great. Use this gift to glorify God. Do you think that's horrible? Do you think we would crush him by telling him he's nothing special? It didn't crush him. It gave him perspective. Our goal was not to downplay the gift. A sharp mind is a tremendous gift. But our goal was that he understand where it came from and who was to be praised for it. He ended up getting a college scholarship for that braininess that paid for everything. It paid for tuition, housing, books. It paid for everything. And what do you think that we told him when he got that scholarship? You are nothing great. God is great. Praise him for this gift. Use it for his glory. And this principle is true across the board. Has the Lord blessed you in the area of finances? Do you know that this gift is a gift from the Lord and not because you are particularly clever or have been luckier than most? Wealth is a gift from God, a blessing. You're nothing great. Praise him for that gift. Use it for his glory. Spend time in prayer thinking about how to use it for his glory. Are you highly organized? This is a gift from God, a blessing. You're nothing great. Praise him for that gift. Use it for his glory. Spend time thinking about how to do this prayerfully. Do you have some ministry that enables you to have an impact on others? You're nothing great. God is great. Praise God for this gift of ministry. Use it for his glory and spend time in prayer thinking about how to do this. Are you beautiful? Have you been blessed by physical beauty? You're nothing great. Praise God for that gift. Use it for his glory. Do you have a child who is particularly beautiful or handsome? I've known Christian parents who think that they cannot speak of their children being beautiful because they will think that it will lead to pride. But that child can look in the mirror and see that she is beautiful. And she will go out into the world and others will make sure that she knows. Far better for her parents to teach her that her beauty is a gift from the Lord, a particular mercy to her from him, and to be taught how to bring glory to God through that gift. So the humble heart appreciates the good gifts that God has given. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has that famous phrase, humility is not thinking of yourself less, but no. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. When we understand that blessings in our lives are from the Lord and not a result of our own awesomeness, we are freed up to think of ourselves less. The final characteristic of someone who has a humble heart that I'm going to talk about is one who realizes their dependence on the Lord. Moses became a pro at this. He relied completely on God to direct him day by day. He never led the Israelites anywhere without the Lord going before them. So I've spent time in the last month thinking about what it means to be dependent on the Lord. I'm an organizer. I set out to do things and I generally get them done. I was the kid in school who would like take over the group project and do it all myself because I wanted to get it right and I didn't want to depend on anyone else to get it right. So this has followed me into adulthood. I would rather do things myself, even around the house, so I can be sure they're done right. Well, if I follow that thread out, 
Where do you think it leads me? It leads me to anxiety. With this kind of self-sufficient thinking, where is the burden for every outcome? On me. That's right. I need to solve this problem. I need to keep that person happy. I need to keep these six balls juggling in the air. I need to put a nourishing table on, dinner on the table every night by 6 p.m. Everything is on me. What if I woke up and my very first thought when my alarm went off was not, what do I need to accomplish today? But instead, my very first thought was, I need you, Lord. I am dependent on you for every breath that I take today. Lead me today, Lord. Help me to please you. As we are getting ready and throughout the day, we can speak truth to ourselves about our dependence on Christ. You know those moments in the day when your mind is just blank? Maybe it's you're sitting at your desk at lunch, or maybe it's when you're washing the dishes, or you're washing your hair, and and it's just blank. And to be honest, it's kind of nice to have blank for a little while. But if we're really honest, it usually doesn't stay blank, does it? Our minds, eventually, they start drifting to hurts that we have, or negative thoughts about someone, or all the things that we have on our to-do list that's stressing us out. Those blank moments instead are opportunities to speak truths to yourself. Think of ten ways that God has shown grace to you in the past couple days. Confess the specific sins. Tell Christ why you have confidence in him. Learn some scripture and recite it to yourself. My husband has memorized the entire Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And he recites a chapter a day to himself out loud in the car on the way to work. He has done this every day for 10 years. Now, I will admit I am not that ambitious. But I have a little 3 by 5 cards up on my bathroom sink. And in my time, my blank moments there when I'm getting ready and no one else is, you know, around me. And I can memorize the scripture. And then those are truths that I tell myself then. If we make this a practice to acknowledge our dependence on God throughout the day, to deliberately cast our anxieties on him rather than to dwell on them, we will cultivate a humble heart rather than living in pride. So other than the ways that I've already described, how do we grow in humility? First, we must understand who we are before the Lord. There's a great story about Teddy Roosevelt and his his friend, wrote about it. I don't really understand who his friend was, but here's what, here's what his friend wrote. We would go out on the lawn and search the heavens until we found the faint spot of light mist in the constellation Pegasus, and we would recite, That is a spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a 100 million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of a hundred billion suns, each larger than our sun. After a moment, Roosevelt would grin at me and say, Now I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. (laughs) That's a pretty good perspective. But it should go even further than that. To understand who we are before the Lord doesn't just stop with understanding that he is infinite and we are teeny tiny. The crux of our understanding is that the Lord is holy and we are not. That he is perfect and we are sinful. And rather than being depressing news, this is absolutely fantastic news. Because he has taken our brokenness, our sinfulness, and he has covered it with his blood on the cross. He has covered that. He has erased our separation from the Lord by his dying on the cross. Humility means I know I can't obey God and his commands without the help of the Holy Spirit. Following God's instructions is just not something I can muster up on my own. I am not that good. Sin is enticing. It is easy to sin. If truth be told, it is often fun to sin for a time. 
Obeying is not a work I can do in order to earn my way to heaven. Instead of depending on my own strength, the gospel teaches me to lean on Jesus Christ. There is this wonderful verse in scripture. It's one of my very favorites because it states it so cleanly. It's Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the number one way to grow in humility is to understand who we are before the Lord. Then we need to act humbly. This might seem obvious, but it is to implement all the things that I have talked about today. Accept God's will for us, even when it's difficult. Look for ways to promote God-esteem rather than self-esteem. Accept advice and counsel from others. Allow God to vindicate you when you've been wronged. Appreciate God's good gifts to you. Depend on God rather than yourself in every circumstance. Humility is like a muscle. You can sit around and talk about exercise all day long, and that isn't going to burn a single calorie or build a single muscle fiber, right? You actually need to get off the sofa, and you need to exercise, and you need to lift those weights to see results. Similarly, you can't just think about growing in humility. You need to ask God to help you do humble acts. You need to do many humble acts. The more we exercise the virtue of humility by God's grace, the more humble we will become. In closing, I just want to read a few verses about the rewards of humility. Just as God's word is very, very clear about the evils and dangers of pride, scripture is also filled with the blessings that God showers on those who are humble. Psalm 25, verse 8 and 9. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. James 4.10 Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5.5 God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Proverbs 22.4 The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Humbling ourselves is not a one-time event. It's something that must continue day after day until we die. So let's decide today. Let's commit ourselves to growing in this area, to bear fruit in this area. Ask God to teach you and to give you the desire to be humble starting today. Okay, so hello. (laughs) That was convicting. That was pretty crazy to think about how often I sin in the area of pride and lack humility. I love the quote she shared by C.S. Lewis. He was a famous author, wrote a lot of really amazing books, Mere Christianity, and books for children, including all the Chronicles of Narnia. But his quote really hit me today. It's, let, me, let me share it with you again. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I mean, isn't that so true? We need to think of ourselves less. I'm not really sure where you are today. I don't know if you struggle with pride, or maybe you feel like it's not even an issue, but I actually encourage you to prayerfully consider this topic. Go before the Lord and ask Him to reveal to you areas where you might be struggling with pride and how you too can grow in this area. I know that I've seen growth in my heart and in my life in the area of pride. I remember when I was a young mom and I thought I had it all together. Man, my kids looked good, my house was organized, and I thought I was doing all that and I was great. And then I started homeschool and I thought, I'm so great, I can do all this at homeschool. And I had this superior attitude towards anyone who didn't do things the way that I did them. And then through a series of events, the Lord changed my heart. I realized how poorly I was reacting to all those around me and how judgmental I had become. And I needed to fix that. And through God's gracious gift of humbling me in some events in my life, I got to see how God cared for me. 
So I encourage you today, if you struggle with pride, and just like Adrian shared how she struggled with pride and how I've shared how I've struggled with pride and how Aaliyah shared last week that she struggled with pride too, I'm guessing we all could use this good work and that we all need to be fighting this sin. So let's stand strong in the word of God and knowing that he is faithful to help us fight the sin of pride. Hey, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I am so grateful to you that you graciously show us our sin every day. Help us to strive to be holy. Help us to honor you with our heart attitude in the area of pride and humility. I pray that you would help us to think more of you and less of ourselves. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, next week, we're going to jump into an interview on the topic of how we can actually read the Bible every single day. Now, don't fret. The woman that I'm going to have on with me isn't perfect. And neither am I, actually, on a side note. I think probably by listening to this podcast, you figured out I'm not perfect. But I'm looking so forward to hearing my guest and and her thoughts on how we can take this gigantically kind of daunting task and break it down into little pieces and be able to read God's word every day and how we can think about it in our lives every day. So you're not going to want to miss next week's episode. Hey, remember, when everything around you is shaken, you can stand unshaken because of our rock and our fortress because of God. Until next time.